So before I start, I just wanted to say if you spend any time at all on Twitter, you're aware of the fuck around that happened a couple of days ago. Somebody made a post about an unpopular character and referred to her as a bitch ass in the process, and it caused a real furor. Furor? Furor. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Anyway, it caused a real uproar. And I know the person who made the post, or at least I've interacted with her, and I know that she didn't mean any harm by it, but people took real offense to it, and she did make things worse for herself by kind of doubling down because she didn't consider herself to be perpetuating misogyny because she subscribed to the fallacy, and I think a lot of women do. I know that I've really struggled to overcome that incorrect assumption that being female means that you can't perpetuate misogyny. Like, you have the right to, you know, say a word, and it doesn't count. And I don't know that it's quite the same as taking it back at least not if you're using it as an insult, say. Um, I felt bad because I saw both sides of it. I mean, personally, the character that she maligned was my favorite character, so you know I have powerful feelings about that. At the same time, one of my greatest fears is that I will carelessly say something on the internet and be just dogpiled on and crucified, and people dogpiled on her and crucified her rather than giving her the benefit of the doubt. And she did make things worse for herself. She doubled down. But at the same time, the way that the internet seems to operate, it's like even if she had said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mea culpa, mea culpa, so many people would have continued to just shred her. And it's a paradox. It's like nothing you can do to fix that kind of stuff works. And so in her shoes, I would have been really torn. I have kind of spoken to her about it, and I did tell her, yeah, I think you were wrong to double down. Um, but also, I sympathized with her too, because I can imagine myself so easily in her shoes. And I actually went back and listened, and two episodes ago, my episode with Rand going through Kyrie Ann, I refer to Lanfear as a bitch at least three times. I just reflexively did it, not even thinking about it. And not even thinking that someone might listen to it and take great offense to it because it's perpetuating misogynistic language um, that I just do not even thinking about it. Um, so I'll try to be mindful of that from now on. I'm going to try to be mindful of a lot of things. I have been aware of using kind of gendered terms. Um, I'm really trying not to say dude so much or say guys so much because, you know, people want to feel included. It's not that hard to change how you say things in order to include people. And if terms really are harmful and they really do perpetuate things, it's really not that difficult. And if saying bitch, if bitch really is such a gendered term for women to shred them. And even when you use it toward a man, you're using it as a way to feminize him, make him seem weak. And that's kind of true. It's used when you use it for a man, you're using it to make him seem weak and less. I will make sure to use the much more neutral and equally as insulting term asshole from now on. 
which is frankly more my preferred term. And I know using the term bitch for land fear isn't nearly as offensive because people don't rush to her defense the way they do for Egwene. And the person didn't even actually call Egwene a bitch so much as refer to her as a bitch ass. And she felt defensive because of that, because she was kind of arguing the point, which is the point was lost. I really did struggle because I did see both sides. And I think that people need to going forth be a little more mindful and a little kinder and give people the benefit of the doubt because Twitter of time has for the most part been a really nice place populated by really nice people. And it's not hard to click on somebody's Twitter account and quickly look through their likes and the things that they say and be like, is this person a piece of shit or not? What's the kind of stuff? What do they say? What do they comment on? What do they like? What do they follow? You know, are they a crazy right-wing neo-Nazi? Are they bitching about the race of the actors that they picked for the show? Do they seem sweet? Do they seem decent? Yes. Okay. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to address them and say, Hey, yo, this came across in this manner. I don't think you're intending to sound this way, but at this point we have gotten to the point in our society where we're really trying to get rid of these stereotypes. We're really trying to get rid of gendered language and it's, we've moved past that and it doesn't sound so great anymore. And I don't know how old the original poster was, but I know that being in my forties, it doesn't take long for society to evolve past you. And especially in the internet age, you can be looking the other way and all of a sudden half the things that you say without thinking aren't cool to say anymore. And you have to be mindful of it um, because you don't want to look like an asshole. And if you care, if you care about people's feelings, if you care about making the world a better place and being more inclusive and making things better for women and queer people and people of color and anyone who is marginalized, then you need to be mindful. At the same time, you also need to be mindful that because people, when they're looking the other way, society moves past them, it's not hard to just reach out a hand and be like, hey, yo, you dated yourself here. You made yourself sound kind of like a douche. Rather than making passive-aggressive pot shots where you tear someone to shreds and they're left kind of being like, I can apologize and nobody's going to listen to me or I can try to defend myself and nobody's going to listen to me. And so they choose to defend themselves because they really meant no harm and they feel hurt and distressed. You know, had I been in the original poster's shoes, I would be distraught right now, distraught that a comment that I made unthinkingly had caused such a shitstorm, and that people had dogpiled on me and never once considered that I meant no harm. She seems to have recovered okay from it, but just think about what you say and also think about how other people feel before you shred them and attack them for what they say. People can be thoughtless and people can be taught and how you approach people, you know, it matters. And um, Malkir's king, he really tried to reach out and kind of bring everybody together. And he's like, everybody posts something positive about a character that they don't like. Just to kind of bring everybody together. Let's do a thought exercise. Let's all, you know, 
act like a family and stop fighting and not be shitty to each other. He also later on the next day or the day after posted saying, Hey, also be careful what you say because people strongly identify with certain characters. And when you talk mad shit, sometimes you're really hurting people's feelings. Um, And that's fair. That's really fair. And I feel like that segues really well into the episode that I'm currently going to do. Hopefully going forward, I don't thoughtlessly say something that's offensive to people. Hopefully I don't cause someone to hate me or think that I'm a total piece of shit because I speak thoughtlessly. Hopefully people don't dismiss me or think I'm garbage because I have not utterly dogpiled onto this person and been like, oh yeah, she's awful. She sucks. She's terrible because she said this or that she's terrible because she completely and totally doubled down and didn't, you know, just flat out say I was wrong. I was wrong and bare her breast um, because I can empathize with where she was coming from and how defensive she felt because she was so shocked to be accused of misogyny that all she could do was kind of defend herself and be like, wait, what? No. And yeah, hopefully nobody's going to come gunning for me because it's just my instinct to be kind and see the best in people and see everybody's side and give people the benefit of the doubt. And I just kind of feel like reaching out to someone and saying, Hey, that wasn't cool. And this is why, and it would have been better if you had done this because I don't think that you meant this as being harmful. It's just, it works better. And I know the internet can be a savage place. And so somehow I feel inclined to just be like, I'm sorry. I'm not sure why. I'm sorry that people are unkind to other people. I'm sorry that people don't listen to people. I'm sorry that people feel reflexively defensive. I'm sorry that people are immediately branded as shitbags. I think that there was fault on all sides. And if I get branded as being trash for that, I guess I do. Cannot fairly crucify the original poster when I so strongly fear doing what she did. When I look back over episodes and I'm like, wow, I called someone a bitch three times in that episode. And I think that she will definitely learn moving forward and I will learn from her mistakes and hopefully other people will learn from her mistakes and that you know, we will just all be better to each other. Let's just be better.
The stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to the 14th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Today I'm going to step away from the story that is a great hunt for a moment and focus on Nynaeve, who deserves some empathy and thoughtful exploration considering how much I complain about her. I'll work to find ways to identify with her and understand where she's coming from because I know she deserves more patience than I grant her and I want to be fair to the wilder wisdom who is well loved by so many Watt fans. If you are not coming to this podcast by way of this being your first episode, you were probably aware that Nynaeve Almira is not my favorite character. Having given it a lot of very fair consideration, especially in anticipation for this episode, which I have been planning since I first shit-talked her in episode 3, I've realized that I don't think Nynaeve is actually any more flawed than any of the other main characters, or any of the characters at all. It's just that the flaws that she has happen to be ones that I particularly dislike. And so I feel a little bad. She just has the misfortune of having a trifecta of traits that rub me the wrong way as like no other traits do. She is not self-aware, she doesn't take responsibility for her feelings, and she can't admit when she's wrong. Those are just traits in people that I really can't stand. But those are just flaws out of many flaws, and all the characters are flawed, and so I feel a little bad, because Nynaeve is a remarkable person with pure motivations and courage and grit and determination. She is on a level with Rand as far as being able to dig deep and power through. She's the one who never really changes. She grows, but she is always the person that she was, and I recognize all of her greatness. And I also recognize that Nynaeve is one of Robert Jordan's most skillfully written characters. Because I constantly react to her like she's a real person. Like, I am ordering in my head right now the reasons that she is the way she is, and my mind makes these frustrated leaps like, yeah, she's insecure, but that's no excuse to not be more self-aware about why she does what she does. Like, I internally demand more from her, and then I feel frustrated and disappointed about the fact that she, as it says about her in the Wheel of Time companion, and this is something that you know that Robert Jordan wrote in his notes specifically to help him write her point of view, she had the habit of self-delusion to a strong degree. If she fell in the mud, she'd try to claim it was on purpose, at least if anyone saw her, or at least that it wasn't her fault. That kind of a habit infuriates me. I feel let down by that lack of growth or maturity. And I know that there are people in the world that exist in that state. There are a lot of people who can't bear to be wrong or can't bear to feel like they look silly. It's not an uncommon trait, but I think that a lot of people disguise it well. We see a smooth surface and have no idea what a snake pit their internal narrative is. All the anxieties and insecurities and grudges and tumultuous thoughts. So we get a unique glimpse into that type of person with her, because a lot of Nynaeve's not being willing to admit when she is wrong is within her own mind. 
So while there is the headbutting that you get with her and other people where she will say shitty things to them and not apologize, much of what you get is what you get knowing her as she knows herself. Even though she doesn't really know herself, because she immediately turns away from uncomfortable truths about herself. Anything difficult that she comes close to finding out about herself, she's like, oh, that's not how it is. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. It's something else. It is. And it's frustrating because that level of self-delusion is something that I don't understand and can't abide. I think that there are quite likely a lot of people who exist in that sort of divided world state where what they perceive is almost a willfully written narrative where they make it better than it actually is because they can't bear to be foolish or not to be taken seriously because their sense of themselves or their sense of their own ego makes them need to project a better image of what's happening in their life or a given situation. Their egos are that sensitive. And so it's probably more common than I might realize. And while I know that I have no obligation to actually try and like Nynaeve, because this is a book series with a varied cast of characters, and everyone has their own favorites. You know, people hate Rand. People hate Perrin. People hate Egwene. You know, Twitter just blew up about this again a couple of days ago. Lots of people hate Elaine. People love and hate different characters for different reasons, because people like different types of people, and people are different types of people. And so I don't have to try and like her. That's not my obligation. I can dislike her as much as I want. But I don't think that's fair, because I know that I do like the person that she comes to be. And so reading her in the early part of the book and just hating, hating, hating isn't cool. Because she does have this growth, and since I know the person that she comes to be is someone that I like and admire, it doesn't seem cool. If I'm going to pick on her throughout the series, and I am going to pick on her, people who don't take responsibility for their feelings and willfully avoid self-awareness, and it is willful on her part because she is not a stupid person, people like that deserve to be called out. And if I'm going to be calling her out, Considering that I know that her character arc is one of the best character arcs in the story, and considering I know that I like the person that she is at the end of it, it would be really unfair if I didn't actually work hard to try and see her side and empathize with her. One of the struggles that I have is that I just don't identify with Nynaeve. I've never been dismissed for my youth. I've never dealt with much sexism in my working life because most men don't treat me as they do quote-unquote normal women. When I first met my wife at work, she was pretty girly. She had long hair and dressed in a relatively feminine fashion, not super femme, but dressed in a girly way. And then shortly after we got together, she began to dress in a more butch fashion. She cut her hair short and eventually shaved her head and started wearing boy clothes and she told me that she had never imagined there would be such a marked difference in the way men treated her and reacted toward her, but that it was like night and day, the difference in the way that men behaved toward her once she started having a more masculine affect or presentation. So my wife has an interesting perspective of what it's like to be treated by men, both when you're presenting in a feminine fashion and when you're being very butch. And so she can tell me what it's like to deal with that kind of sexism, or being treated differently, or talked down to, or spoken to in a more patronizing fashion by men in a way that I just can't identify with. 
Which is why I think that my wife is one of the people who, like, right away she really liked and took to and kind of identified with Nynaeve. And I just don't, I think. Because I, in a strange way, I'm able to kind of tangentially benefit from male privilege just because I am so masculine. And so I don't get patronized by men the way a lot of women do, or feminine presenting women do. I am also not a caretaker type. I like people, but I am not everybody's mom. I have a fondness for teenagers, but it's sort of a detached fondness. It's like, you know, give them praise and encouragement. If they need money, you can give them money. And in very drastic cases, you can come to the rescue. My sister-in-law last year was having a lot of trouble with my in-laws who are dumbasses and don't know how to raise a teenager. So we turned our living room into a second bedroom and we rescued her so she could finish her senior year at our house because we were afraid she would totally self-destruct under their fascist rule. But that's not being a caretaker exactly. I do have a bad temper, but I keep it to myself. I'm very diligent at keeping it to myself, you know. My temper, my emotions, my business. And I sort all that shit out ahead of time. And then if I feel someone else has done something that warrants any anger from me, after I have totally analyzed that, then I will speak to that person. But never until I've completely assessed it, because I want to be fair. And I'm good at admitting when I'm wrong. I don't mind that kind of humility. Which is probably why I really hate it when other people can't do it. Because for me, I'm like, it isn't that hard. At the same time, I know having high expectations of Nynaeve is unfair. She's young. And while she doesn't deserve the kind of slack I cut the younger kids for all the many ways in which they are dumbasses, I was not nearly as self-aware or responsible for my own feelings at 25 as I am now. I wasn't so good at controlling my temper at 25. I wasn't like, my feelings, my responsibility. I totally let loose with my temper on other people sometimes. I could be a real dick. And at 43, judging someone who is 25, you have to cut them some slack. I started dating my wife when she was 21. And I was 38 at the time, so someone judgy could consider me a creepy cougar. And so I was diligently following the Dan Savage campsite rule, with the goal to leave her better than I found her, because I did not anticipate that it would be a long-term relationship at the time. And I treated her with great care, and I was very respectful, and just kind of took my lead from her. And I granted her a lot of allowances because of her youth. I knew I needed to expect and accept that she might do or say some things that I would not have tolerated from an older partner because it just would not have been fair to demand the same level of maturity in someone whose frontal cortex wasn't fully developed. I trusted her to grow and learn quickly and forgave any mistakes because that is just part of dealing with being with someone that young. So if I would cut the woman who became my wife some slack, it doesn't seem reasonable not to cut Nynaeve slack. And I feel partly it's just that because Nynaeve is the wisdom, and because she takes being the leader as her due, that sometimes it's easy to forget her youth because we're the reader and we aren't looking at her young face. You know, her 20-something looking face. She looks 20 because she slowed early. But we don't see that face. And so then you get frustrated with her immaturity. And you're not remembering that she is a 25-year-old yokel. And she is a yokel with a lot of issues. 
From the story, including the information that we get from Raven's Eye of the World's alternative prologue, we know that Nynaeve is an only child. She's an orphan. Her father was the parent that died first, and her mother died when she was 14. We don't know how old she was when her father died, but he lived long enough to impart a great deal of his knowledge upon her, and we know that she was very close to him. He taught her woodcraft, and not just the basics. He spent enough time with her in the woods, hunting and teaching her how to follow traces and signs, that she is a match for Lon when it comes to tracking. She is incredibly talented and comfortable enough out on her own, presumably capable of living quite rough. So she had a valuable experience growing up with a parent that she was very close to, who taught her the sort of skills that could act as a knowledge base for her. Like knowing tracking and woodcraft has to be an advantage and being able to glean and gather herbs and learning that kind of stuff at a young age because there is something to knowing the survival skills involved in hunting and tracking and just being able to live out in the woods. It imparts common sense and critical thinking. And knowing her father made an effort to teach her that stuff, when it is not normal for women to learn how to do that in the Two Rivers, gives us insight into the closeness of their relationship and how important he must have been to Nynaeve. When it comes to her mother, the Wheel of Time companion says of Elnor Almira, She was, in Nynaeve's opinion, a very difficult woman to live with, especially as a mother. Elnor never raised her voice. She didn't have to. She told people what to do and they obeyed, even the Coplins and the Congers. She asked and people complied. The women's circle always asked her to speak first so everyone else could hear her opinion before opening their mouths. Every woman in the district wanted her advice, and most of the men, too. Elnor never ever lost her temper, but even Doral Baron, the old wisdom, jumped to apologize as soon as one of Elnor's rare frowns appeared. So she almost sounds a little bit like a cat swain, and if she's difficult as a mother, it does give a lot of insight into Nynaeve's character. If she, as a young girl and in her early adolescence, has the kind of mother that makes her feel tense and anxious and like she can't do anything right, maybe? That's what I take from that, is that Elnor is a woman who doesn't even have to tell you that she's angry. You're anxious and want to not even open your mouth and say anything until she gives you her opinion so you know to parrot it back at her. That's the impression that I get from the text under Elnor's entry. So I assume that if Elnor is a difficult mom, then for sure Nynaeve was closer to her father, and that his death would have been incredibly hard on her. The Wheel of Time companion says that Nynaeve wanted to be a wisdom from the time that she was little. If Mistress Baron deferred to Elnor, and Elnor suggested Nynaeve as a trainee, which it does not specify that, but that may have been how it played out, I'm speculating... And then a confluence of events occurs where Mistress Baron's first apprentice dies of a mysterious illness. She's one of the three and four who unknowingly attempt to learn to channel without a teacher and don't survive it. And shortly after that, Elnor dies and leaves nine even orphan. And so everything aligns for her to become an apprentice. In Ravens, Egwene's narrative says that a lot of people thought Doral Baron should have sent Nynaeve to her relatives out in the country and found another apprentice who was a great deal older because 14 was incredibly young to be an apprentice. Maybe people resented the force of Elnor's personality and sought from beyond the grave pushing her daughter into a role that they felt she wasn't worthy of, and maybe Nynaeve felt shitty that she had to be constantly advocated for. 
It says in Ravens that Mistress Baron is always talking her up and saying what a good job she's doing and how talented she is, basically constantly pushing back against the resistance and negativity that Nine faces. And the constant resistance and negativity and the need for endless advocacy, no matter how talented she is, has to make her struggle for self-worth. And I wonder if one of the reasons that she engages in so much self-delusion is because it hides away much of her own doubts, and it helps her turn aside when, if she engaged in self-reflection, it might hit her ego where it hurts, and she just can't take that. She is too much a ball of anxieties and low self-esteem. Nynaeve has the raw talent to be wisdom, but there is more to the job than talent. With the politicking and the leadership skills, it really is a job for someone who's good with people. At the same time, when you are in a leadership position, and that's part of the job, if people don't take you seriously, sometimes you have to go hammer and damn the consequences. As Rand thinks after Nynaeve bitches the boys out because Matt is talking about Billy Conger naming the Dark One... Just basically saying, every time I tell Billy to name the Dark One or ask him to name the Dark One, and Nynaeve is like, what? Are you... You are. You are that fucking stupid. And she proceeds to lay into all three of them about it. It says, Rand stood up straighter, though her glare was not directed at him. Perrin looked equally abashed. Later, one or another of them would almost certainly complain about being scolded by a woman not all that much older than themselves. Someone always did after one of Nynaeve's scoldings, if never in her hearing, but the gap in ages always seemed more than wide enough when face to face with her, especially if she was angry. If the young people are that frustrated with the situation, dealing with the temper of someone who is super bossy and a bit of a bully... A person my age, staring at someone who looks 20, even if she's 25, she's slowed early, and she's coming all aggressive and pulling bully tactics because she's standing up for herself, and she's being willing to go full hammer because that's the only thing for her that seems to work. I'm not the type of person who tolerates that. And once you start down that path, for stubborn people, and RJ tells us over and over again from the beginning that the Two Rivers people are stubborn, any change in course once that starts is basically backing down, and so it feels like there's just this recipe for constant, endless conflict and negativity. Nynaeve likely has some kind of imposter syndrome. She feels constantly observed and doubted. Her mom may have belittled her. Maybe she put her forth to Mistress Baron to be the Wisdom's apprentice, but maybe she didn't. Maybe she said to Mistress Baron, well, she wants to be a Wisdom, but I don't know that she would be good at it. And Mistress Baron was quiet, but was thinking to herself, damn, Elnor, why you gotta be such an asshole? Your daughter's talented. The description of Elnor leads me to believe Nynaeve has hardcore mommy issues. Reading between the lines, I imagine someone hypercritical, and so it makes sense that Nynaeve is one of those people who is reflexively defensive. And I am a judgy asshole, because being crazy, and I'm using the ableist term crazy because having a verifiable mental illness, I'm taking it back, and I'm going to refer to myself that way because I feel like I'm allowed to. Being crazy has forced me to make a lot of internal growth by constantly assessing myself. So I'm self-absorbed as fuck. I am always contemplating why do I do or feel or think things. I am in a state of constant navel-gazing, sorting myself out. But that's a learned habit. And so to be frustrated with Nynaeve is kind of arrogant and shitheaded. Because it's like, how dare a 25-year-old not have my level of personal growth? It's sort of bullshit. 
Do you think I was good at being responsible for my feelings at 25? I wasn't the best at it. My wife is 25. She's about to be 26. And she's still in her not doing enough mind frame. That anxiety riddled phase that people in their 20s often have. Where they're just sort of like... Their life is going by and every year is faster and faster and they're not satisfied with their accomplishments and they're like, I'm not getting enough done. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And they're punishing themselves. You know, I just, I outgrew that. A lot of people like my wife or me when I was 25 or 27 or 29 or even in my early 30s, it took a long time. A lot of people punish themselves. I punished myself. People punish themselves with negative self-talk and anxiety and guilt. You know, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you good enough? You're not doing enough. Instead of punishing herself, Nynaeve projects and deflects. It is never her fault. She can't bear to be thought foolish. She can't bear to be thought in the wrong. And so she flies off the handle at the smallest slight. She flares up or tugs her braid at the mere suggestion that she might be the one who is wrong. When Ewan Fingar tells Rand and Matt about Moraine calling Nynaeve child after she apologized and began asking questions about the village once she realized that this is the wisdom and not just a random village girl who looks super young, it says, Nynaeve answered like she'd bitten a green sweet berry. Then when the Lady Moraine walked away, Nynaeve stared after her like, like, well, it wasn't friendly, I can tell you that. Is that all? Rand said. You know Nynaeve's temper. When Senbui called her a child last year, she thumped him on the head with a stick, and he's on the village council and old enough to be her grandfather. Besides, she flares up at anything and never stays angry past turning around. Nynaeve is the one Evans fielder who is suspicious of Moraine and Lon before we even learn that Moraine is Aes Sedai. And maybe part of that is because Moraine infantilizes her and calls her a child, which really fucking pisses her off and puts her back up. And at that point, Moraine is an enemy. But I also think she just mistrusts strangers. Everyone else looks at the strangers and they're all like, cool, shiny. And Nynaeve goes further and wonders, what the fuck are they doing here? Why is this beautiful woman in this beautiful silk dress with this obvious guard, why are they here in our backwards village? This doesn't seem right. It's really suspicious. And when the village council adjourns after questioning Pat and Fane, Bran Elvier says something shitty about Tom Merrill, and he's pissed about him being a douche or something, and it says, Nynaeve, busy gathering her cloak around her, sniffed loudly. Worry about the Glee Man if you want, Brandlewyn Alvear. At least he is in Emmons Field, which is more than you can say for this false dragon. But as long as you are worrying, there are others here who should excite your worry. If you please, Wisdom, Bran said stiffly. Kindly leave who should worry me to my deciding. Mistress Moraine and Master Lon are guests in my inn, and decent, respectable folks, so I say. Neither of them has called me a fool in front of the whole council. Neither of them has told the council it hasn't a full set of wits among them. It seems my estimate was too high by half, Nynaeve retorted. She strode away without a backwards glance, leaving Bran's jaw working as he searched for a reply. She doesn't trust Moraine and Lon. And while I think once Winter Night happens and the Trollocs attack and she sees Moraine healing people, especially people who would have died otherwise... 
because they're beyond her skill, that lets her know deep down that Moraine isn't evil. She still doesn't trust her, and she resents her and is just set against her for the child remark, because Nynaeve bears grudges. And while I don't bear grudges, I do know what it is like to have something cling to me emotionally in a negative way after an interaction, even though it probably shouldn't. And you can't shake it, you know? I will have things, even things that really aren't significant, mark me emotionally, and I will struggle with myself and be like, you know, is it reasonable that I am feeling this strongly about it? Is it fair? And often it isn't, and it pisses me off because it's like, I don't want to be this upset about this thing, whatever it is. It shouldn't be bothering me this much, and I don't like it because I want to feel a proportional response to whatever it is and process it and stop being upset about it because it isn't that important. In Nynaeve's case, she kind of embraces those emotional... I guess it's like a laceration. She does nothing to help them heal and kind of deliberately leaves them raw. Things that weigh on her leave a mark that doesn't go away or it heals very slowly or something. And often if it does start to heal, she'll pick the scab. And that is the behavior of somebody who's been hurt a lot. And maybe that's from her mom. If her mother was really difficult to live with and someone that everybody shut up and listened to and didn't want to make upset. And she was the kind of person who never had to raise her voice. Like... You know, my mom could yell sometimes, but she was scariest when she didn't. She had a voice, like a tone of voice when she was upset that frightened me when I was little. And if Nynaeve had a mother that she was viscerally frightened of who made her feel small or like she wasn't good enough, you know, maybe not even on purpose, I can see we're having all those kinds of anxieties and self-doubt and not even being able to look that in the face because she can't bear to even think of herself as someone who is filled with neuroses. She'd be like someone in our day and age who's like, I don't need therapy. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't have depression. I don't have anxiety. You guys are the ones who have something wrong with you. Why are you guys always making such an issue out of everything? You're all thin-skinned. Why are you always so upset? Why is everybody taking issue with the things I say and do? always projecting, always reflexively defensive, always lashing out and unable to focus on the internal turmoil and anxiety and everything because it is so hair-trigger painful. And I can see that. I can see it. Whenever I think back to the beginning of The Eye of the World with its very simply titled chapters like Strangers and The Peddler and The Glee Man, I always kind of quickly remember that there's another introductory chapter with a plain title indicating a single subject for its focus called The Wisdom. But my mind always places it with those other beginning chapters. And in actuality, The Wisdom is chapter 16. RJ waits to really introduce us to Nynaeve until he can get her to where she has a weak power dynamic. We meet her sooner. We see the boys and some of the older people's opinions about her, and we see how she carries herself in the course of her office and her duties. We see that she's a bit of a bully, and depending on how you take those first interactions with her when you're in Emmons Field, you may be like, God, she's kind of a hard ass and she irritates me, which is what I took from her. Or you might be like my wife who met Nynaeve and was like, you know, she's fucking right. Those two strangers are suspicious. And all these dumbasses are like, yay, strangers. And my wife, who is a suspicious individual, thinks that all of the Emmonsfielders are morons for just welcoming Moraine and Lon in. And she really appreciates Nynaeve's being rude to the village council because fuck the patriarchy. 
So regardless of whether you perceive Nynaeve as being an obnoxious bully or whether you see her as being an intelligent, no-nonsense person who is good at advocating for herself and isn't going to let a council of men patronize her and tell her to be quiet, when Rand drags his father into Emmonsfield after the Trollocs attack the farm, we see a different side of her. We see Nynaeve in action, healing, and we see how quietly distraught she is by the fact that she cannot help Tam. And that is a certain view inside of her. It lends our first look at her vulnerabilities. It says, The wisdom dropped to her knees beside the litter without giving him so much as a glance. Her face and dress were even dirtier than Egwene's, and the same dark circles lined her eyes, though her hands too were clean. She felt Tam's face and thumbed open his eyelids. With a frown, she pulled down the coverings and eased the bandages aside to look at the wound. Before Rand could see what lay underneath, she had replaced the wadded cloth. Sighing, she smoothed the blanket and cloak back up to Tam's neck with a gentle touch, as if tucking a child in for the night. There's nothing I can do, she said. She had to put her hands on her knees to straighten up. I'm sorry, Rand. For a moment he stood, not understanding, as she started back to the house. Then he scrambled after her and pulled her around to face him. He's dying, he cried. I know, she said simply, and he sagged with the matter-of-factness of it. You have to do something. You have to. You're the wisdom. Pain twisted her face, but only for an instant. Then she was all hollow-eyed resolve again, her voice emotionless and firm. Yes, I am. I know what I can do with my medicines, and I know when it's too late. Don't you think I would do something if I could? But I can't. I can't, Rand. And there are others who need me. People I can help. This gives us our first glimpse at how personally she takes death and dying. Possibly because she's an orphan. Possibly because she's a perfectionist and she can't bear the idea that there are people she can't heal. And she hates stuff that she can't fix, especially something like this. I'm certain that in all of her time daydreaming about being the wisdom and healing the sick, she never imagined something like this, or that she would have to do what amounted to battlefield triage. She very likely did actual triage that night, where she had to sort people out and be like, this person will survive, this person is probably going to die. She was likely sorting them out, even while Moraine was still fighting off the Trollocs. And then, maybe once the Trollocs fucked off out of the village, Moraine was able to come back and find the wounded. But before that, Nynaeve had to choose which people she could help, and it had to have been absolutely heart-wrenching. But I find it is this passage in Chapter 16 where we finally get the first truly revealing glimpse into Nynaeve's character. They're in Barillon in the private dining room in the Stag and Lion, after Perrin has fetched Rand and Matt to tell them that Nynaeve is there. It says, Since everyone is here, Lon said, leaving the fireplace and filling one of the silver cups with wine, perhaps you will finally take this. He proffered the cup to Nynaeve. She looked at it suspiciously. There is no need to be afraid, he said patiently. You saw the innkeeper bring the wine, and neither of us has had a chance to put anything in it. It is quite safe. The wisdom's mouth tightened angrily at the word afraid, but she took the cup with a murmured, Thank you. I am interested, he said, in how you found us. So am I. Moraine leaned forward intently. Perhaps you were willing to speak now that Egwene and the boys have been brought to you? Nynaeve sipped the wine before answering the Aes Sedai. There was nowhere for you to go except Barlon. To be safe, though, I followed your trail. You certainly cut back and forth enough, but then I suppose you would not care to risk meeting decent people. 
Nynaeve is triggered by the word afraid. Any suggestion of weakness makes her upset. She has a really good brain. Her reasoning skills are well honed. She's like, you know, I did my powers of deduction. You had to go to Barlon. Where the fuck else were you supposed to go? But I wasn't going to risk it. I followed your trail. And she's got to put her little barbs, her shitty little barbs in her conversation, which she does with everyone. She has to make shitty comments. And it's one of the things about her I feel makes her a borderline abusive and kind of toxic person. It's one of the things about her that's a real negative. She's got to say shitty things to people. And it's not cool. In this case, though, I feel she's justified. I like Lon and Moraine both. And they're in the right, on a mission doing the right thing. But Nynaeve doesn't know that. She has no reason to think that what they're doing is right. And so having her throw in a shitty little barb like, you wouldn't want to do what decent people do, you know, just like she did with the village council saying, you're all a bunch of dumbasses and I overestimated your brains by half. I fantasize about making condescending comments during confrontational encounters, usually while I'm in the shower. So I get the appeal. This quote goes on. You followed our trail? Lon said, truly surprised for the first time that Rand could remember. I must be getting careless. You left very little trace, but I can track as well as any man in the two rivers, except perhaps Tamal Thor. She hesitated, then added, Until my father died, he took me hunting with him and taught me what he would have taught the sons he never had. She looked at Lon challengingly, but he only nodded with approval. If you can follow a trail I have tried to hide, he taught you well. Few can do that, even in the borderlands. Abruptly, Nynaeve buried her face in her cup. Rand's eyes widened. She was blushing. Nynaeve never showed herself even the least bit disconcerted. Angry, yes. Outraged often, but never out of countenance. But she was certainly red-cheeked now and trying to hide in the wine. Here she feels challenged by Lon, which is a theme throughout the first book. She constantly feels like she's competing with him. And she feels she needs to prove herself. But she's also very hesitant, as if sharing any memories with her father is incredibly personal. It's like those seem super precious to her. And while Lon's praise making her blush is a foreshadow to romance, it also shows here is someone who is 20 years older, acknowledging her skill and her worth without being condescending, without patting her on the head, without any kind of indication of, oh, good job, child, and without her having to fight for it. He is speaking to her as if she is his equal. And it might be the first time that someone so much older than she is is like, you are a very skilled person. Your father taught you well. If you can follow a trail I've tried to hide, goddamn. And the gratification that comes from that. It's not even just that she feels a sense of attraction, I think, so much as just the flattery and the appreciation of finally feeling recognized and not dismissed. And I think maybe... That would have been the first thing that did it for her. It wasn't that, you know, Lan had a nice ass or was the best with his sword or anything like that, but just the fact that he was an older person who recognized her worth and treated her as an equal and did not patronize her or talk down to her. And, you know, being someone who could be called by someone judgy, a creepy cougar, I cannot judge the age gap in the relationship that RJ has here. There is something to be said for someone who is young but generally mature wanting recognition from someone who is older because they're used to the older people in their lives treating them like they are stupid and immature and not worth being listened to or respected. That was kind of the dynamic that my wife faced in her household with her idiot parents. And so having someone not all that much younger than her parents come along and be like, 
Jesus, you've got an amazing brain, you're easily as mature as most 30-year-olds I know, and you're fucking smart and capable. Treating her with that kind of equality and acknowledgement was attractive in a way that I feel is similar to what's going on here between Lon and Nynaeve. I think that one of the reasons that I feel the relationship between Lon and Nynaeve is the best relationship that Jordan writes is because it's a mature relationship. There's nothing really notable about the age gap, and that's a real thing. My wife and I forget about our age gap until I make some cultural reference that she doesn't get, or we talk about my impending demise because it's likely I'll predecease her. Theirs is a real relationship based upon mutual respect and appreciation. Law nods and gives hats off to her for her skill and her ability, and he gives her the respect that she has long craved from people who are older than she is who have dismissed her, and it's real. It's real. So Nynaeve is there in Barillon at the Stag and Lion to try to get the kids back to Emmons Field, and she's preparing to basically throw a fit. You know, and I said I stole them away, and Tom kind of puts his foot down on it because he's like, yo, the White Cloaks are in town, and you're putting people in danger, and if you don't shut the fuck up, you're going to get the Children of the Light down on us, and we're all going to get taken by the questioners, and basically like, yeah, you need to shut up and not cause a fuss, because this is a real danger. It says, that, Nynaeve put in sharply, it's just one more reason for them to come home with me in the morning, or this afternoon for that matter. The sooner we're away from you and on our way back to Emmons Field, the better. We can't, Rand said, and was glad that his friends all spoke up at the same time. That way Nynaeve's glare had to be spread around. She spared no one as it was, but he had spoken first and they all fell silent, looking at him. Even Moraine sat back in her chair, watching him over steepled fingers. Moraine, leaning back to see the Taviran in action. I think from the beginning she assumes that it's Rand, probably because he looks like an Aegeal, and she figures that that makes sense, but Moraine is also never going to put her eggs all in one basket or make assumptions, and she's happy to sit and watch and see, hey, does this change the course of things? And while we can't know if Nynaeve would have succeeded in getting them back to Emmons Field if the dragon hadn't spoken up, the course does get changed. I've come to the conclusion, having done this episode now, that Nynaeve is someone who must have lots of anxiety, and she subsumes it with her anger. She's a massive control freak, and she has to have things her way. She is someone who needs to have the ability to make things okay, and when she can't do that, when she doesn't have the control over things in her life, it makes her anxious, and she hates feeling anxious. And so she turns that anxiety into anger. And as someone who hates feeling anxious, I get it. I can't stand feeling anxious. It's a terrible feeling. I'd rather feel depressed than anxious. I originally thought that Nynaeve chased the kids because she thought that she was the only person who could do it right. She had no faith in anybody else's ability to get it done and get it done well. But rereading this particular quote from Rand's POV, it says... He did not want to face the wisdom alone, but he could not get away now that he had met Nynaeve's eye. A particularly searching eye, he thought, puzzled. What did they say? He drew himself up as she came closer. She indicated Tam's sword. That seems to fit you now, though I would like it better if it did not. You've grown, Rand. In a week? He laughed, but it sounded forced, and she shook her head as if he did not understand. Did she convince you? he asked. It really is the only way. He paused, thinking of Min's sparks. Are you coming with us? Nynaeve's eyes opened wide. 
Coming with you? Why would I do that? Mavra Mylan came up from Devon Ride to see to things till I return, but she'll be wanting to get back as soon as she can. I still hope to make you see sense and come home with me. We can't. He thought he saw something move at the still-open door, but they were alone in the hallway. You told me that, and she did too. Niney frowned. If she wasn't mixed up in it. I said I are not to be trusted, Rand. You sound as if you really do believe us, he said slowly. What happened at the village meeting? Nynaeve looked back at the doorway before answering. There was no movement there now. It was a shambles, but there's no need for her to know we can't handle our affairs any better than that. And I believe only one thing. You are all in danger as long as you were with her. Something happened, he insisted. Why do you want us to go back if you think there's even a chance we are right? And why you at all? As soon send the mayor himself as the wisdom. You have grown. She smiled, and for a moment her amusement had him shifting his feet. I can think of a time when you would not have questioned where I chose to go or what I chose to do, wherever or whatever it was. A time just a week ago. He cleared his throat and pressed on stubbornly. It doesn't make sense. Why are you really here? She half glanced at the still empty doorway, then took his arm. Let's walk while we talk. He let himself be led away, and when they were far enough from the door not to be overheard, she began again. As I said, the meeting was a shambles. Everybody agreed someone had to be sent after you, but the village split into two groups. One wanted you rescued, though there was considerable argument over how that was to be done considering that you were with the likes of her. He was glad she was remembering to watch what she said. The others believed Tam, he said. Not exactly, but they thought you shouldn't be among strangers either, especially not with someone like her. Either way, though, almost every man wanted to be one of the party— Tam and Bran Alvere with the scales of office around his neck, and Harold Lewin till Alsbet made him sit down. Even Sen Bui, the light saved me from men who think with the hair on their chests, though I don't know as there are any other kind. She gave a hearty sniff and looked up at him, an accusing glance. At any rate, I could see it would be another day, perhaps more, before they came to any decision, and somehow... Somehow I was sure we did not dare wait that long. So I called the women's circle together and told them what had to be done. I cannot say that he liked it, but they saw the right of it, and that is why I am here. So the real reason that she came is that she got one of her storm senses, her listening to the wind, and I'm wondering, was it Taviran pulling her? Like, was she a needful piece to their flight from Barlon? Min pulls Rand aside and tells him that they're in greater danger since Nynaeve showed up, but I think that's a coincidence. Nynaeve shows up, and at the same time, Rand runs into Pat and Fane in the street and is like, oh, yo, yeah, you should come hang out with us at the Stag and Lion. You know, there's people there who know you, and you can come get some food. Moraine will help you out. So I don't think Nynaeve was the one who put them in danger. I think it was just coincidentally Nynaeve shows up, and Rand tells Pat and Fane where to find them at the same time. Rand put them in danger. So maybe it was Nynaeve's storm sense or her listening to the wind that let her know she didn't dare wait and that they needed someone to leave to go find the kids that night. I don't see anything in their flight from the stag and lion, being on the Camelin Road, getting into Shatterlogoth, that Nynaeve is absolutely necessary for, except maybe the herbs that she gives Moraine as they slip off and go hide in their murder city. So maybe it's just that she is needed by the world, and she's feeling that pull and thinking the kids need me to come and get them. And really it is the world that needs her because she is going to be required to cleanse the true source and fight in Shale Ghoul and do the work that she will be doing with Rand over the next two years. I do hope in the show that they make all five of the Emmons fielders to Viren. 
And yeah, that's an awful lot of Taviran. And I think that RJ probably didn't have the girls be Taviran because it just would have been too much. It's sort of like, oh, everybody's Taviran. Yay. And it's kind of like the girls had both the one power working for them, which gave them a little bit more capacity for their plot armor. And then also maybe the boys were dumber. And so hopefully the girls' brains would help them out. Though I don't know that it necessarily did. When I guessed it on the Wheel of Time spoilers podcast about a year ago, we were discussing whether the boys just needed a little bit more help, and that was why they were Taviran and the girls weren't. But I feel like it would just be best in the show if they all were, because enough happens where the pattern pulls everything along. And I always have this vision of this kind of long game with the pattern being... And I do not understand theoretical physics, but I just imagine like this three-dimensional field where there's this black hole in it and things are being pulled along. And Nynaeve is just being drawn along by events in the future and she's starting to roll downhill like a marble or something. And she, yeah, she just got sucked into it. And so even though the thing that she's going to be needed for is in the future, the need is powerful enough that it pulls her out of the two rivers. The first point of view that we get from Nynaeve is after Shatter Logoth. She's gotten away by herself, and she wakes up on the banks of the RNL, and she's looking across the river and trying to see if there's anybody there and kind of wondering if anybody's alive after what happened last night. And it says, angry with herself for thinking of the possibility, she slid back down into the hollow. Not even Winter Night or the battle before Shatter Logoth had prepared her for last night for that thing, Mashadar. All that frantic galloping, wondering if anyone else was still alive, wondering when she was going to come face to face with a Fade or Trollocs. She had heard Trollocs growling and shouting in the distance, and the quivering shrieks of Trolloc horns had chilled her deeper than the wind ever could. But aside from that first encounter in the ruins, she saw Trollocs only once, and that once she was outside. Ten or so of them seemed to spring out of the ground, not thirty spans in front of her, bounding toward her on the instant, howling and shouting, brandishing hooked catchpoles. Yet as she pulled her horse around, they fell silent, lifting muzzles to sniff at the air. She watched, too astonished to run, as they turned their backs and vanished into the night. And that had been the most frightening of all. They know the smell of who they want, she told her horse, standing in the hollow, and it is not me. The Aes Sedai is right, it seems, the shepherd of the night swallow her up. Reaching a decision, she set out down river, leading her horse. She moved slowly, keeping a wary watch on the forest around her. Just because the Trollocs had not wanted her last night did not mean they would let her go if she stumbled on them again. As much attention as she gave the woods, she gave even more to the ground in front of her. If the others had crossed below her during the night, she should see some signs of them. Signs she might miss from horseback. She might even come on them all still on this side. If she found neither, the river would take her to Whitebridge eventually, and there was a road from Whitebridge to Camelon, and all the way to Tarvalon if need be. The prospect was almost enough to daunt her. Before this, she had been no further from Emmons Field than had the boys. Terran Ferry had seemed strange to her. Barlon would have had her staring and wonder if she had not been so set on finding Egwene and the others, but she allowed none of that to weaken her resolve. Sooner or later, she would find Egwene and the boys or find a way to make the Aes Sedai answer for whatever had happened to them, one or the other, she vowed. This is so great. It's just beautiful determination. It shows that she's intelligent and not driven by fear, capable of critical thinking, not prone to panic, and the fact that the prospect of having to go on, 
hit Whitebridge, hit Camelin, and go on all the way to Tarvalon if necessary, that it's almost enough to daunt her. But Two Rivers people are pretty much dauntless, and Knight of Almira is especially fucking dauntless. And if she had to go on alone, she totally would have. She would have done it without a second thought. But RJ doesn't leave her alone. He puts her with Moraine and Lon. So someone she cannot bully or sway in any way, and someone she feels this weird competitiveness toward. It says, Crouching, she slipped from tree to tree, mentally cursing the skirts she had to hold up out of the way. Dresses were not made for stalking. The sound of a horse slowed her, and when she finally peered cautiously around the trunk of an ash, the warder was dismounting from his black warhorse in a small clearing on the bank. The Aes eye sat on a log beside a small fire where a kettle of water was just coming to a boil. Her white mare browsed behind her among spare weeds. Nynaeve remained where she was. They are all gone, Lon announced grimly. Four halfmen started south about two hours before dawn, as near as I can tell. They don't leave much trace behind, but the Trollocs have vanished. Even the corpses and Trollocs are not known for carrying off their dead, unless they're hungry. Moraine tossed a handful of something into the boiling water and moved the kettle from the fire. One could always hope they had gone back into Shattered Logoth and been consumed by it, but that would be too much to wish for. The delicious odor of tea drifted to Nynaeve. Light, don't let my stomach grumble. There was no clear sign of the boys or any of the others. The tracks are too muddled to tell anything. In her concealment, Nynaeve smiled. The warder's failure was a slight vindication of her own. So Nynaeve's one-sided pissing contest that she has with these two is really childish. But she has lost all of her power. And these two people are more grown up than she is. They are more poised. They are more worldly. And she's not in their league. And she has to travel with them. And for someone like Nynaeve, who is so incredibly prideful and so touchy about her position and propriety, her very place is wisdom, it's so uncomfortable for her. Her inner narrative later is super self-conscious. Like, she does not want them to think she's gawking at Whitebridge. She uses words like self-possession when thinking about Moraine. And there's an undertone of envy when she does. And while Lon is not trying to purposefully upset her, Moraine is because it makes Nynaeve easy to manipulate. And learning that she can channel makes Nynaeve super upset because channeling is something that Aes Sedai do and they're evil and bad. And Nynaeve is not so simplistic that she really makes the connection in her brain as Aes Sedai means evil. And like she's not so dialed into like a QAnon theory or something where she refuses to see any evidence to the contrary, regardless of what you put in front of her, but she is real, real stubborn. And I can't identify with the feeling of realizing that you can do this thing that is something only someone who is evil and bad could do. Maybe it's how it feels to realize you're queer if you grew up in a family where it's not okay to be queer, and you don't want to be, and you feel really bad and dirty and gross to grow up that way. You know, that's a very tragic thing. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where it was okay. Um, but maybe that's like a parallel of what it's like for her to just feel like there's something wrong inside of her now. And that's got to be really hard. Moraine wants Nynaeve to go to Tarvalon because they have the unending problem of not enough girls and young women coming to the tower to learn to be Aes Sedai. And as long as Nynaeve was the wisdom in the village... She's a wilder, and she survived her one in four chances, so it's like, leave her be. 
And so as she said to Egwene, when she was sort of like, surely before not two in one village, and Egwene was like, hoo, 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 Moraine replies that her path will lie another way. And she was willing to leave it at that. But once Nynaeve shows up, she's kind of like, well, now that you're here, guess what? You can channel. And so she plays to Nynaeve's vulnerabilities and uses reverse psychology to manipulate her. Because if she can get her into the tower, it says... You have great potential, I think, Moraine continued. With training, you might become even more powerful than Egwene, and I believe she can become one of the most powerful Aes Sedai we have seen in centuries. Nynaeve pushed herself back from the Aes Sedai as she would have from a viper. No, I'll have nothing to do with... With what? Myself? She slumped and her voice became hesitant. I would ask you not to tell anyone about this. Please. The word nearly stuck in her throat. She would rather Trolloc's head appear than she had been forced to say please to this woman. But Moraine only nodded assent, and some of her spirit returned. None of this explains what you want with Rand and Matt and Perrin. The Dark One wants them, Moraine replied. If the Dark One wants a thing, I oppose it. Can there be a simpler reason, or better? She finished her tea, watching Nynaeve over the rim of her cup. Lon, we must be going. South, I think. I fear the wisdom will not be accompanying us. Nynaeve's mouth tightened at the way the Aes Sedai said wisdom. It seemed to suggest she was turning her back on great things in favor of something petty. She doesn't want me along. She's trying to put my back up so I'll go home and leave them alone with her. Oh yes, I will be going with you. You cannot keep me from it. No one will try to keep you from it, Lon said as he rejoined them. He emptied the tea kettle over the fire and stirred the ashes with a stick. A part of the pattern, he said to Moraine. Perhaps so, she replied thoughtfully. Nynaeve is stuck in this horrible position, having to travel with Moraine and Lon, just scared and powerless and furious, and she's desperately concerned for Egwene, and Moraine won't look for her, and just kind of lays out all of their shitty options. And then Nynaeve is faced with the most crushing and traumatic part of the journey for her, and that is having to make the deliberate choice to leave someone behind. And Nynaeve is someone who's used to more intellectual exercises and what medicines can and can't do. Can you save someone's life? Can you not? First, do no harm. Those types of things. The things that one deals with in medicine. Not the sort of life or death decisions embodied in, I have to make a choice to leave someone behind. I hope Egwene is safe, but I know that the boys are in danger from murderal, and the two of them that went down the river don't have their coins anymore, so it is imperative that I find them as fast as I possibly can. As it says, As much as I hope for Egwene's safety, Nynaeve, I fight against the Dark One, and for now that sets my path. Moraine's calm never slipped while she laid out the horrible alternatives. Nynaeve wanted to scream at her. Blinking back tears, she turned her face so the Aes Sedai could not see. Light. A wisdom is supposed to look after all of her people. Why do I have to choose like this? Here is Lon, Moraine said, rising and settling her cloak around her shoulders. To Nynaeve, it was only a tiny blow as the warder let her horse out of the trees. Still, her lips thinned when he handed her the reins. It would have been a small boost to her spirits if there had been even a trace of gloating on his face instead of that insufferable stony calm. His eyes widened when he saw her face, and she turned her back on him to wipe tears from her cheeks. How dare he mock my crying? Are you coming, Wisdom? Moraine asked coolly. She took one last slow look at the forest, wondering if Egwene was out there, before sadly mounting her horse. Lon and Moraine were already in their saddles, turning their horses south.
She followed, stiff-backed, refusing to let herself look back. Instead, she kept her eyes on Moraine. The Aes Sedai was so confident in her power and her plans, she thought, but if they did not find Egwene and the boys, all of them, alive and unharmed, not all of her power would protect her. Not all her power. I can use it, woman. You told me so yourself. I can use it against you. And here, I can identify with Nynaeve a little. Not her focus on rage and vengeance. Anger is not something that is empowering for me. It makes me feel sick and queasy. I've been so angry that I've puked. I've done that before, more than once, and it's alarming. That level of emotion causing a physical reaction. I don't like anger, and I don't like angry people. Anger is dangerous, and it's scary. But I do understand what it feels like, struggling to keep it together while everything goes to shit. I know what it's like to go to work and just have a day where it's a bad day for whatever reason. One of the things about being bipolar is you don't actually have to have a reason why a day is bad. Just because is often the reason. It's Tuesday. It's sunny. It's not sunny. I had toast for breakfast. Whatever. It's just a thing. But a lot of times if I'm suddenly in an off mood, I'm going to be in an off mood all day. And one of the worst things that can happen is if someone asks me if I'm okay. It's like, yes, I'm okay. And don't ever question that. You have to believe in it. It's like Tinkerbell. You have to believe that I'm okay. And we all pretend that it's true and that I'm okay. Because then I can maintain this facade of being okay. But it can often be a real struggle to hold it together. And there are just people, most people, honestly, that you'd rather die than break down in front of. And maybe having such bad anxiety, Nynaeve just focuses her desire for vengeance on Moraine in that moment. And that's all that keeps her going. Like folding anxiety into anger and projecting it in such a way that it's not debilitating for her. And maybe if I were enraged all the time, it would be easier to cope with things in my life. I don't know. Maybe I would not feel like I was going to melt down on those days if I were just so constantly pissed. But I would rather have a day where I have to run off to the bathroom for a 20-minute timeout and then come out looking obviously like I've sobbed my eyes out, which is always super awkward. Fortunately, everyone in my department has something wrong with them, so no one is super judgy. And now I'm probably not going back to work. In fact, I'm not. I've got an appointment to be fired tomorrow. In, in fact, by the time this podcast drops, I'll officially be unemployed. So it's not even a problem. I can cry all day if I want. But I get it. Anger is power. Anger holds anxiety at bay. Maybe anger, even rather ironically, allows her to have some stability. I don't know. But while I find that her vendetta against Moraine isn't very logical, at least not in the sense of, I'm going to learn this to bring you down because it's all your fault that we're all out in the world and all this bad stuff is happening to us, because none of that follows through logically, you know? It's not Moraine's fault that all of this shit is happening, and it doesn't take much reasoning to figure that out. But if Nynaeve's vendetta against Moraine is more just that that is her focus point, to keep her anger so that her anxiety doesn't take over, that is logical in a twisted way, you know? And logic often isn't Nynaeve's best friend. But if she is projecting so that she can convert her anxiety into anger, 
And so she focuses on a target for her anger. You know, it doesn't even matter at that point if it's logical. It doesn't need to be. It's a coping mechanism for someone who is ultimately good. And she's brave. And she cares about people. And she mostly tries to do no harm. But if she has to do harm, holy shit, is she down to battle. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Now that I've got a nice foundation laid for my understanding of Nynaeve, I'm ready to move on to the really cool stuff, which is exploring her powers and her trip through the White Tower and getting to the point where she barbecues some shanchen. You can find me on Twitter at Gray. that's gray with an E. All of my links down in the show notes will take you to Discord, my email, Watt Trivia and Games, which has cool games for you to play, Watt Fandom and Calendar, which will take you to a ton of other content creators. I recently recorded another episode with Leslie from Stuck on Arrakis, where we talked about Crossroads of Twilight, which apparently no one but me likes, so she and I discussed it, and that was a really good time. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review my show, particularly on iTunes. I'd really like to get some more exposure. I'd love it if you would tell a friend about me. That would be really neat. Um, I don't have a ton of listeners yet, and I'd love to get some more. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder. And if I were the awkward third wheel in an uncomfortable journey with someone I love to hate and someone I'd love to bone, I'd probably stoke the fires of vengeance in my heart, too.